Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is David Wenham. We're talking to David about his new book, Jesus in Context, Making Sense of the Historical Figure, just published by Cambridge University Press. David uh, was in the faculty of Wycliffe Hall at University of Oxford for many years. Following that, he taught at Trinity College, Bristol, and he continues to be very active in terms of research and publications to the present. David, it's great to have you on the show. Congratulations on the book. Thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation to talk about it with you. Well, thank you for coming. Before we talk about the book, though, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Obviously, you've had a long, very active academic career. You've written a huge amount of material, some of which we were talking about off-air before we began to record. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be a New Testament scholar and how you came to find particular themes in New Testament studies that that you've really wrestled with and developed over the years? Yes, it really goes back to the very beginning of my university career. When I was a teenager, I had been brought up in a Christian home. But when I was a teenager, I started having questions about it. Could you really believe this? Can you really take seriously the Christian stories? I admired my parents' faith, but it was a big question for me. I went to Cambridge University, had a place there, and when I talked to the college in Cambridge, I wondered whether I might do medicine rather than theology at that point. I thought that would be something really useful to do. But it would have meant that I would have had to start a complete new set of A-levels. So I thought that theology um, was, if you like, the medicine of the soul. And I saw it as an opportunity to engage with the questions, even the doubts that I had had as a teenager. My question was, as a teenager, what is the evidence? Is there really good evidence? And actually, there weren't a lot of books that uh, seemed to address those doubts and questions. And so I started um, in Cambridge, in the university, and those questions came up all along through my studies, because in uh, that university, as in lots of good universities, uh, you had people who were skeptics, as well as people who believed as Christians, intelligently believed. So that's how it started. And then in those wonderful balmy days, um, the government gave all sorts of uh, grants. And so I was able actually to go straight on from Cambridge into doing a doctorate. And uh, that was at Manchester University. And the subject that I chose was related to my questions about the Christian faith. Can you believe in Jesus? What are the sources like? And I did my doctorate there uh, on, effectively, on the origins of the Gospels, questions to do with how Matthew, Mark, and Luke relate. That was the beginning. And then that, that, if you like, shall remained my academic agenda, if you like, almost up to the present, I suppose. But over the years, um, my first teaching job was actually in India. I then came back to a research job in in Cambridge, 
And that research job was, again, in questions to do with gospel origins and how they were written. Um, and then I was later came to Oxford and uh, was involved in further teaching and uh, research from then on. Um, and so, if you like, from then right through my career up to my retired present, present um, the questions have been on the agenda and I have been uh, engaging with them in different ways right through that period. Now, this, this very interesting new book, Jesus in Context, Making Sense of the Historical Figure, recently published by Cambridge University Press, it appears in a, a, a most interesting series, Cambridge Studies in Religion, Philosophy and Society, which is a series that has a slightly broader audience in mind than your typical scholarly monograph of which you've produced many over the years. So could you tell us a little bit about what your intention is in writing a, a, this kind of book with this slightly broader focus in terms of audience? I was amazed when I heard from the editors of this book and of this series, as you say, Cambridge Studies in Religion, Philosophy and Society, they got in touch with me and said, would I contribute a volume to this series, either on Jesus or on Paul, whom I have also uh, studied and the relation between Jesus and Paul? I think I uh, got back to them and said, uh, I don't know a lot about religion, philosophy and society. Um, perhaps I should be taken with a little bit of a pinch of salt, uh, but I do know quite a lot about Jesus and Paul. And I thought as somebody who was coming towards the end of their academic career, there could be no place that I would be more glad to um, conclude with, if that's the right way to put it, than with an attempt to summarize what I have learned and thought about Jesus in history. And uh, so, um, yeah, that invitation came to me out of the blue and uh, I got down to write the book and if there was one blessing of the lockdown, it meant that I was uh, in the room where I am speaking at present um, for for uh, during the lockdown, and I was able to work and work on this book using various other wiser people than me and uh, and accessing resources. Fantastic. Now, when we come to think about Jesus in context, what sources can we best rely on? I think one of the extraordinary things about Jesus is how much we do know about his world and his context. I think for, for many people, understandably, um, 2,000 years ago, somebody 2,000 years ago, extraordinary stories 2,000 years ago, surely it's, you, you know, we can't really have a grip on what was going on in that period and, uh, and know a lot. But actually, we have, I think we have extraordinary sources for that period. It's, it's hugely different from, for example, um, the story of King Arthur, where even though much more recent, people haven't really much clue whether we know really anything about Arthur. But um, with the time of Jesus and uh, Palestine, to use the uh, geographical term, Palestine at time, we had a lot of information. It was the Roman world. We know loads about the Roman world at that time. We've got Roman sources of all sorts. Um, 
not telling us, the Roman source, not telling us a great deal about uh, Palestine itself. It was uh, right out in the remote end of the empire. But nevertheless, we have very good Roman historians. We have a most important Jewish historian, Josephus, who actually wrote his Jewish account of the period in which Jesus lived. And um, he says loads about people who occur in the story of Jesus as well. So about people like Pontius Pilate, very well known, the high priest Caiaphas, John the Baptist, who comes into the story of Jesus. Josephus is a mine of information and actually rather interesting as well. He, like all authors writing, uh, had certain biases, but uh, a very, very valuable source. There are other things. We actually have, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found in 1947. Um, ancient scrolls found in the Dead Sea Valley in Palestine, uh, and these scrolls have not been touched or had not been touched uh, since the first or second century AD. Uh, and they give us a portrait of a particular group of Jews at the time of Jesus. These scrolls don't refer to Jesus. I don't think the authors knew about Jesus. Um, but uh, lots of information about what was going on at the time. Now, that's even before I've started to mention the Christian sources. And we have extraordinary sources uh, and very important sources about, about Jesus and his life and his teaching. The earliest Christian sources we have are actually letters from um, Paul, Paul of Tarsus, Saint Paul, as Christians have come to call him. Um, and his letters we can date with great accuracy to 20 years after the time of Jesus. And Paul is extremely interesting because he was, to start with, hostile to Jesus actually a major opponent wanting to destroy the Christian movement. And yet now we've got his letters, and although he's not trying to tell us the story of Jesus, he's actually writing to people who already knew those stories of Jesus, um, he, he refers to this and to that and different things, to Jesus' teaching, to Jesus' death, to Jesus' rising from the dead, which the Christians were proclaiming. And we have this arch-skeptic, now arch-defender of Christian faith. Very interesting and important and dateable source. Then, almost, I think, uh, unparalleled probably in ancient history, we've got the four Gospels, the four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these have been, uh, I was going to say, studied to death by scholars. Every question has been thrown at them and so on. Um, but there is a really good case that these sources um, are full of reliable history. Um, although in, they are related to each other in various sorts, although they are biased in the sense that these are Christian authors who are writing about someone who they are enthusiastic for, nevertheless, these are written within 50 years, 50, 60, 70 years of the time of Jesus, not years after. Uh, they are writing about 
a movement, some of the founder of a movement which has been going on over into their lifetime and uh, in their history. Uh, these sources are very important. And there's evidence that, for example, somebody like Luke, known as Luke the doctor, probably because he was a doctor, um, is somebody who writes and says that he's researched the matters with great care. And there's evidence that he was actually um, around and talking to people who knew Jesus and so on and so on. So um, I think the sources are extraordinarily good, even though there have been loads of questions raised by scholars about them. Thank you, David. Now, we've been talking about history there, but one of the most stimulating points I, I took out of your book was a, a point about geography. And that's about the very contested region in which Jesus grows up. Could you tell us something about it, its history and, and why it might be such a significant place for the movement to begin? Very good question. You're quite right about the importance of the geography, and I hadn't mentioned that. I should have mentioned how, not least in the modern um, Israeli period, uh, how much archaeological study has been done um, in in Palestine, loads and loads of archaeology has been done, and very interesting. I mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls, but other things too. Uh, and this part of Palestine at the time, as I said, was part of the Roman Empire. We know a lot about that. Um, and it was also a time of, you might say nothing changes, um, of nationalism, Jewish nationalism, hoping for freedom from the Romans, a hope that Jesus' disciples shared. Um, it was that historical context. And and Jesus' story is, and the stories we find in the Gospels, um, are very much set in that context. So Jesus' first followers are fishermen. And uh, we know about fishermen in Galilee, including at the time they've actually found uh, some 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 boys who were um, going with a metal detector over mud flats actually located um, a boat set in the mud because the uh, the water levels had dropped, um, which turns out to be a first century boat. So we, you know, there's no question about the the fishing stories in Jesus context. They make perfectly good sense. Um, full of fishing stories, full of agricultural stories because it's a very agricultural um, environment and Jesus' teaching relates both to the fishing but also very much to the agriculture. We have his sayings about vineyards and um, crops growing and so on and so on. So um, the context and the places, Jerusalem itself. Um, in Jerusalem, you had the the temple, which had been built by the, he was almost a warlord when he started, Herod the Great, turning into an autocratic ruler at the time of the birth of Jesus. And we know from Josephus, but you can also see uh, remains of what he built in Jerusalem today. He built, uh, he rebuilt the Jews' temple. And it was an absolutely magnificent building. It was really one of the, the wonders of the world at the time. 
Um, and actually, the rebuilding was only completed in 19, about 19 AD. No, later than that, even. Later than that. After the, I, mean, I got the date wrong there. Um, it started in 19 BC and actually was not completed until after the time of Jesus. But this magnificent building um, was a focal point for Judaism at the time and remains a focal point for Jews. Hence, all the recent controversy over the Dome of the Rock with Muslims claiming it as their center because they've been there for hundreds of years now with the Jews claiming it as their historic center with very good historical basis. We know about that. And, and this is one of the places where Jesus' story culminates in the temple. It's, uh, so, so the context is really important. That's um, Jerusalem. And then in the north, Galilee, again, it occurs in, in, in modern, modern accounts of what's going on. Troubles around Galilee, troubles on the Golan Heights, and so on. Um, so that's, well, that's a start on agreeing with you. The land is hugely important. So, David, very interesting the way you unpack there the sequence of political entities that are laying claim to that land, both in Jesus' day and, and of course, uh, subsequently. But one of the things that's very striking about your book is the emphasis you give to the theme of a different kind of kingdom. And that's the kingdom that's preached by John the Baptist and by Jesus himself. What is this idea of the kingdom of God and how does that resonate in these Jesus stories? When I wrote a book on Jesus' parables, the title I gave it gave to it was The Parables of Jesus, Pictures of Revolution. Intriguingly, my American publishers, it, it was published in this country, in the UK, and in America, my American publishers dropped the subtitle, Pictures of Revolution. I, it was a time when uh, student movements and so on were tending to be on the Marxist side, and I suspect that the, um, the American publishers, they never told me, um, actually felt Pictures of Revolution sounded rather subversive. But actually, I do like that expression, the revolution, and if you like, the revolution of God. The Jews had for years and years been under the thumb of the great imperial powers of the ancient Middle East. Um, they'd been under the thumb of the Babylonians, modern Iraq, if you like. Um, they'd been under the thumb of the Persians. They were subsequently under the thumb of Greek and Egyptian rulers. And, and the Jews, and for a time, there was ethnic cleansing. They had been taken, um, in the, taken off to, uh, to, to, to Babylon, uh, to modern Iraq, if you like, ethnic cleansing. Um, and the Jews were longing for the time and looking for the time when they would come back to their land, when they would have freedom, freedom of religion, uh, when they could be their own masters and not under the thumb of one power after another. And in the time of Jesus, the power was the Romans. The Romans had taken over from the Greeks. Um, they were longing for that. And, and you can see that hope with Jesus' disciples too. They hoped 
Jesus was going to bring this revolution. And in a way, actually, Jesus was a revolutionary, but not in the sense they hoped for, not in the sense that he was going in politically um, to take on the Romans and throw them out. Uh, he had, to put it simply, more simply, a much more spiritual objection, uh, uh, object uh, in mind and intention. He was someone who wanted to bring a real revolution. He wanted to bring um, freedom to those who were oppressed. He wanted to rescue the poor. He wanted to bring his nation back to God because he was very, very critical of the religious hierarchy. Like many religious hierarchies, they were seemed to be much too much in the business of um, maintaining their own position and their own wealth. And, and so Jesus' revolution was a different, it was a, a God-centered, love of God, love of your neighbor-centered revolution. And that was what he was bringing. And I think the kingdom of God, that expression kingdom of God or the rule of God, God ruling, he wanted to bring back theocracy in, uh, in his sense, uh, a very positive theocracy in place of, of, of other sorts of uh, oppressive human rule. A theocracy of love, perhaps, something like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. So fascinating, uh, David. So one of the things you've emphasized in the book is that there are a number of other um, ethical communities within the Judaism of Jesus' day. And you, you explain uh, who those groups are, what, what they stand for. How distinctive was Jesus' teaching within that context? Others, like the community of the Dead Sea Scrolls, were looking forward to God to intervene. But Jesus was very different from other Jewish leaders at the time, especially different from the Pharisees. The Pharisees, although we may have a very sort of negative picture in some ways, they were very sort of scrupulous um, Jews. They put huge emphasis on keeping the Old Testament, the Jewish laws, keeping them, keeping them scrupulously down to the details and so on. Um, so you had, you had the Pharisees, you had the high priests who were the authority in the temple and controlling affairs in the temple. They were less interested, I think, in being religiously scrupulous, but very interested in maintaining the status quo and not upsetting the Romans, for example. Jesus, in that context, comes in and certainly when compared to the Pharisees and other Jews for whom keeping the Old Testament law to the letter and all the rituals that went with it, uh, for Jesus, that was not his priority. His priority was, uh, and this comes out in his famous Sermon on the Mount, as it's been called, Jesus' priority was both Above all, he, he summarizes, he says, I haven't come to destroy the law and the prophets, the Old Testament and the Jewish law. I've not come to destroy it, but I have come to fulfill it. 
and for him, fulfilling it meant not just keeping the letters of the Old Testament law, that wasn't his priority, but he says, you have heard that it was said, for example, love your neighbor. I tell you, Jesus says, also love your enemy. And, and Jesus brings a, a love ethic famously portrayed in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where relations between the Jews and the Samaritans were, 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 were very, very poor indeed. And Jesus portrays a Samaritan uh, as the man who brings help. This, this expresses Jesus, um, Jesus' own teaching of a love that goes out and reaches um, to Jesus was criticized by his by the religious authorities for the way that he mixed with sinful people. Uh, he mixed with tax collectors who were generally corrupt and, and disliked. He, he, he mixed and, and had contact with the sex workers who were um, obviously seen as unclean. And for Jesus to do this um, was to put him right at, if you like, a, very much in the firing line of the of the religious hierarchy. And Jesus explained uh, that he had come to bring healing. He had come to bring God's forgiveness. He had come for the outcasts and the needy. He was, he was a subversive figure in a very positive sense. He wasn't condoning what others were doing. Indeed, Jesus' teaching on certain, uh, on ethical issues and so on, was actually more demanding uh, than those of, of other people. And Jesus had a very high ethic in all sorts of directions. Um, but he also came, here's Jesus' other famous parable, um, the parable of the prodigal son, the picture of God reaching out for people who had gone away from God and wanting to bring them back to God. So Jesus comes with a very well-developed ethical system but your book also emphasizes a lot of his teaching is about himself and his own identity. How does that work out? That's quite interesting um, because, yes, his disciples wanted to turn him into a messiah in the sense of somebody who would lead them to get rid of the Romans and to be a political leader. Jesus refused to go down that road. Jesus did not see his calling as uh, to go and, uh, and fight the Romans. But even towards the end of his ministry, when he came to Jerusalem and his disciples were hoping, now's the time when he's going to get rid of the, um, get rid of the Romans and conquer this place. And they asked Jesus, um, two of his uh, his fisherman disciples said, we want top seats in your cabinet, effectively, when you take over in Jerusalem. But Jesus did not see that as his calling. He actually, the term he used most when referring to himself was son of man, which is in the, it comes from the Old Testament, notably from the book of Daniel, and, um, and, and simply uh, means, if you like, the human being, the human man. 
And Jesus used that to refer to himself. And in the book of Daniel, the picture is of, of God intervening in history, of the overthrow, yes, the overthrow of the powers of the world, but the coming of God's chosen one, the Son of Man. And Jesus used that phrase. I think it was less politically electric than the phrase Messiah, the anointed king. Um, and Jesus used that phrase to refer to himself and saw his ministry very strikingly and very very problematically for his followers, actually saw himself as fulfilling another, here's Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets, another Old Testament picture, which was of God's chosen servant actually giving his life and suffering to bring people back to God and, uh, and to bring this kingdom of God. So Jesus understood himself. Yes, he did see himself as God's chosen king, but not in the, in, if you like, the political sense. He did see himself as the one who was fulfilling God's purpose for, indeed, for human, bring, human being, bringing a, a recreation. Um, and he did see himself as somebody who had come he came to Jerusalem at the time of Passover, and Passover was a time when the Jews remembered the sacrifice of a lamb, bringing them release from their captivity in Egypt, going back thousands of years. And Jesus saw himself as coming sacrificially to give his life, to bring freedom to his people, and indeed beyond his people to the world. I think. So your reading of the four Gospels, David, emphasizes this fact that they all conclude, or even as in the case of John's Gospel, for example, take up half of the book really with the events surrounding uh, Jesus' death. That death would not have come as a, a great surprise, I think, to Jesus, is, is what you're telling us. Um, but wh what's its meaning? What's the meaning of those death and resurrection accounts? I think the death of Jesus, the meaning of the death of Jesus, is Jesus saw himself as coming from God with God's authority to, to use the old phrase, to take away the sin of the world. Um, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus, John the Baptist who preceded Jesus, John the Baptist referred to by Josephus, not just by the New Testament. John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the one who is going to give his life, who takes away the sin of the world. And I think Jesus' understanding of his own ministry and his own calling, a very demanding calling, was that he was going to, to bring God's forgiveness and healing to humanity and to open the kingdom of God, the revolution of God, the people of God, and his death was a new sacrifice. Sacrifice was just so important within Judaism, and Jesus saw himself as that was what his death was doing, bringing forgiveness, dying for the people, uh, dying to bring a new world. And then his followers proclaimed his resurrection, and resurrection, the resurrection 
this extraordinary, um, you might say, almost unbelievable miracle. Actually, not so unbelievable with Jesus because he had been uh, such a remarkable person bringing healing, stilling storms and so on. Uh, the resurrection represents the the victory, if you like, the victory of 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 Jesus' love, um, and the opening of God's kingdom and people um, to to the world, and uh, and Christians have uh, ever since have been um, proclaiming to the world that through Jesus there is forgiveness, there is hope, uh, there is eternal life. There is something beyond um, the just sort of material life and and this life just coming to an end and the the planet collapsing. Well, David, thank you. You unpack these themes and many more in this remarkable new book, Jesus in Context, Making Sense of the Historical Figure. Um, thanks so much for coming on to talk about it today. Before we let you go, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment, what we might expect to read from you next? I'll tell you, I'm I'm doing two things. One is I, I've done a lot of work on this question of Jesus and Paul, and people have often said, oh, Paul invented a different religion from that of Jesus. I'm quite persuaded that is wrong and, uh, and that Paul knew a great deal about Jesus. And I've been uh, writing an article, um, one more article on that, um, showing how Paul knew and believed in, in Jesus' teaching and life and so on. The other thing I'm doing, um, apart from being very, um, very busy with a, a small local church uh, that we've recently rebuilt, another thing I've been doing is I've been trying to translate a much more important book than mine, um, a German book by a, a friend called Rainer Riesner, uh, Messias Jesus, Jesus the Messiah. It is a brilliant book, I think. It is um, by somebody who is expert in history and archaeology, and I really wanted to get into English, but I am struggling because although I can read him and understand him, translating it into um, good English is is possibly a challenge too much for me. <laughs> and um, I see you mentioned that book in its German edition in the preface to, to the book we're talking about today. So that's wonderful. Um, those are two wonderful projects, and we look forward to seeing them in due course. David, thank you for writing this book, Jesus in Context, Making Sense of the Historical Figure, and thanks for coming on to the show to talk about it. Thank you for having me. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on the New Books Network podcast.